podcast welcome today's episode sees me talking to a mr rajiv dyer rajiv is an oxford mba and goldman sachs alum with a strong background in finance he currently leads investments at founders factory africa and spends his days working with companies in the agri-tech fintech and health tech space our chat centered around vc heuristics mental models of the 21st century and how to develop filters for an infinite world with infinite amounts of media and opportunities for distraction as always please do not forget to rate and subscribe and now without any further delays here's my chat with rajiv rajiv dyer hello <laughs> hello how are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm, I'm great. I'm great. I'm, I'm really enjoying this very luxurious environment at work. Yeah, 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 it's great. It's great. Thanks to Masayoshi San and the guy. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got to, um, you've got to make the most of what you have. Yeah, and you've also got to make the most of like largesse in the venture market as well. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, like, uh, um, uh, a few years ago, 2015, I had a friend who was living in Hyderabad. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that like at that time like food delivery startups were just exploding in India as they were all over the world and he was like in one year he said like he paid for like of his like 100 delivery meals he probably paid for 50 because other like for every meal that he got it was comped as a like yeah. a growth strategy to try to bring people yeah. on so uh, as I said you got to make you got to make uh, Jew in uh, you know there's venture money in the market and people are eager for customers. Yeah. I read an interesting snippet of an article, not the whole thing recently, about how that bubble is bursting for, and this was written in a US context, yeah. about you know, food delivery, yeah. getting into an Uber, yeah. and everything that your, your life revolves around now <laughs> and all of these subsidized <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> apps. <laughs> And how the chickens are coming on to the millennial roost. money game. Is the millennial, exactly. Yeah. I, I read the S one for I think it was DoorDash or Postmates. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. And like the whole big thing was like data as a moat. You know what I mean? And I was like, wow, that's a gigantic fucking lie. It's <laughs> not data as a moat. Yeah. It's food delivery, motherfucker. Like, like you can optimize, but like, don't come here and tell me that like we're better than Uber Eats because like we use data more intelligently. You're all using data more intelligently at that scale. Like, We've just had an African example this week, yeah. right? A Kenyan startup that's shut down Kune Foods. Okay. Food delivery, dum, dum, they, dum. you know, three dollar meals, dum, dum. and they were growing. And yeah. you know, I, re- respect to, to, to the founder, I met him. He's come here to, to Cape Town a couple of times. And so uh, he's, he was pretty popular with the investor community and really nice guy and he had this long post which is on LinkedIn at the moment and it's getting a lot of attention and comments and but it's 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 effectively the same thing as as he said we, we couldn't sustain the sort of subsidized cost that we had to provide in order to grow at the rate that our investors needed to see ah yes the return of the empire yes yes so, yeah it's 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 almost like um I always say to young kids who are building things that are interesting, I'm always like, be careful about taking VC money. Not because like there's anything particularly evil about VC that's more or less evil than any other parts of day stage capitalism. 
I think more along the lines of that, like, now there is uh, expectation to perform. And that expectation to perform can misguide you from your initial thesis and reason for doing this. You know what I mean? So, like, if you can stay uh, venture-free, um, unless you, you, you're looking for great venture partners who are going to be um, assisting you make better decisions, not just checking you in with you once a month, rather try avoid it for as long as you can until you know exactly what you're doing, exactly what you're doing. And then once you raise capital, you and your ventures become partners, not like uh, a housemaster and a mm. border, if that mm. makes any sense, yeah. Speaking of which, um, and speaking about food delivery and the explosion in that bubble, and like all the different bubbles that happen in this space, you're a VC. Postmates, Deliveroo, like Uber Eats, all of these platforms, they're, they're like, they're very insidious in the sense that like, because you use them, you can automatically like, um, you know, you can, you, can, you can believe that they're worth, you know, investing in, if that makes any sense, right? Sure. But like a guy who's building like, uh, like Replete, for instance, the ID um, company, right? If you're not a coder, you can't really see the huge value in them, right? You can only just see the spreadsheet of their growth. And like, how do you think VCs like need to approach that problem or that opportunity rather of like saying, like, because food delivery is a great example of that, right? Because we could all access it, there was an over like over allocation of capital towards it because people thought it was all a good idea. Because the, the 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 amount of thinking one has to do is very limited, you know what I mean? Versus like um, something like hard tech or hard science, where you have mm -hmm. to do a huge amount of work, yeah, just to understand the problem, then to understand the product, and then to invest. Mm -hmm. So it's like, of course, like it's it's like. The, 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 the amount of work is greater, but the, the opportunity for success is also greater because very few VCs will do that level of work, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, how do you see that as a VC when you see an opportunity that makes like, uh, that seems sensible and logical because you're using it, but might have problematic underlying fundamentals that mean that it's just like terrible investment. CC Uber, you know, as an example. Yeah. Because like all the VCs who invest in Uber were like, damn, I got a black car for like 400 rand. Right, this must work, and no one is like, but it costs even 500 rand. You see what I'm saying? I think it, when you start to unpack the spectrum of capital, yeah, and what people care about at different points along that spectrum, yeah, it starts to help us understand some of what you're describing. So, if we start all the way on the left, where you have very early investors, angel mm. investors, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, what we call the three Fs initially. Friends, families, and fools. Yeah, friends, yeah. family, fools, and then more sophisticated angels. You know, th that's a stage where people are just looking to back a success story. Yeah. They're looking to... Help a friend you know, out. Exactly. Invest and, in their nephew and, and even And even angel investors who invest in people they don't know, yeah. they're at a point in their lives and in their career where they're saying, you know what, I want to leave a legacy. I've done X, Y, Z. I've made yeah. my money. Yeah. And it's about legacy. It's about giving back. And, 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 and you sort of have that there. So then you get into this phase where people have given you their, their trust and their money, etc., and you've managed to do something decent with it. Now you get to the stage where people start to understand that there's some demand for what you're doing. And there is a commercial opportunity not to get it all the way through to a very sustainable business that's going to exist for the next decade mm. or for the next century, but just to a point where they can sell it to others Yes, yes, they can pass the buck. Exactly. Yeah. 
And so that's the, 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 I guess the, the part of the spectrum that you're referring to where we have VCs mm. who are saying, we, we see that there's enough here, there's enough signal that there's demand for it. So the Ubers, et cetera, people are starting to use this. Ooh, what's, what's going on? I'm interested. And I feel like given my network and given what I can put, put into this and capital, we can grow this really quickly. And then we can sell it on to someone else. And then we can sell it on to someone else. Now, what we've seen is that once a business grows in that cycle, they go series A, B, C, they, and, and now you're starting to unpack the fundamentals. And you look at businesses, the big businesses, you know, the Amazons, the Facebook, the Spotify's of the world, the Ubers of the world, and you start to unpack unit economics and you start to unpack, it doesn't make, and, and you have businesses that IPO that still don't make sense because they're still following this hype trail. Yeah. Right? And over time, in different markets, you have examples where people go, oh, okay, well, I need to learn from this. And so let me, let me start to unpack fundamentals. Contrast that with the other type of business that you're talking about, which is there's a really interesting, uh, innovative piece of IP that I can build in healthcare or yeah, in some yeah, sector, yeah, right? Yeah. And I, I have to build that more sustainably because I need FDA approval, I need this, I need that. Correct, yeah. But the difference there is people don't have the time horizon with the way funds are structured to follow that journey. So they're forced to follow the, 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 the first journey of growing really quickly because they can do that and exit within a fund structure or a fund life that makes sense for them economically. Mm. Okay. Right? The ones who do have the time horizon and it's everything off, well, whenever I have conversations, it comes down to time horizon in yeah. one way or another, whether it's politics or VC or personally, it's just, it's just time horizon. And our relationship with time is such a fascinating concept. That's a whole conversation in its own. Yeah. And so if you've got the time horizon to follow a sustainable business, you will reach more sustainable rewards. Hmm. Okay. But surely, because like, I, mean, I, I think the hard thing about like, going back to what you're saying about um, the noise, you know, signal versus noise. Like, I'm not fine. Like I don't disagree with you on that. I think it's just as someone who's fallen for the same trap, you know, of like chasing the noise and like seeing great growth, backed by venture capital funding. You know what I mean? And like doing cool interviews with, you know, tech uh, publication X, publication Y. Yeah. Right. And then like you stop and you're like, this doesn't actually make any sense. You know what I mean? And like you stop and you go like, this isn't a sustainable business, but it's growing. You know what I mean? Or like we can't actually make sense of this. Like, how do you, even with, a, even with a, let's say I gave you an infinite time horizon, why do you think so many people fall for that trap regardless? But here's, I, I've grappled with this at times myself working in this industry. Yeah. And there's days where I wake up and I go, why are we chasing unicorns? Because our market just doesn't lend itself to that type of growth trajectory, yeah, right? yeah, what you're Africa, saying, yeah, yeah. right? And then there's other days I wake up and this is through learning from the experience of other people. So I'm not saying this is, these are all my ideas. Is it's, it's a signaling effect where you say, okay, we don't actually need a hyper growth unicorn right now because we're solving for very fundamental issues as, as, a, as a market, as an economy, as a continent. But it's, but it's the signaling effect. So if, if the ability 
to take a theoretical unicorn and give it life in this market, not for the sake of building a unicorn, but for the sake of saying it is possible to do that. Mm. The capital, the interest that that attracts, and and think about someone sitting in a, big, a corporate organization who says, I don't have the risk appetite to go work at a startup, mm. but I, I have all the talent, because we're not short of talent. No, right? no, no. I, have, I, I don't have the risk appetite, I don't have the safety net, but the, but, but the signaling effect mm. of a pay stack or a flutter wave or, or a wave or, or whatever in this market, right? The signaling effect alone can, can create so many tangible and intangible opportunities that you need to build a market over time. Yeah, in yeah, 10, yeah, 15 yeah. years from now, this conversation may be different and we may say, actually, we do need that type of hyperscale. Yeah. But you can't just switch on the tap at that point. It has to come from all of this happening now. Not to say that we need those businesses today, but we need what they represent. Yeah, I'm out speaking to another guy who is in late stage venture on this podcast. And his thesis, that was a really interesting one, was that like, especially in the Web3 space, um, like price and, in and like money is not a bug, it's actually a feature. Because all of these individuals who are working at like very blue chip um, corporate tech companies, like a Salesforce or like a Microsoft or like an Amazon, stop and look at Web3 and go, oh, I'll actually jump in there because it seems like there's a lot of money. Yeah. And, and that in turn allows it to like start sucking a lot of talents out of like blue chip tech, which in turn creates like opportunity for an actual unicorn in the space because the talent is now available for it. You yeah. see what I'm saying? One big disclaimer or caveat to that is as long as we're not selling people dreams and the facade that going into the space doesn't come with its risks. Because yeah. we need more talent, we need more people to test their own entrepreneurial uh, boundaries, but that needs to be done within a broader understanding that it is high risk and there's a good chance that you can go test it in this environment and it won't work. Mm. And if you don't have the personal, uh, I guess, safety net yeah, and yeah, ability yeah. to deal with that, often financially, that's a problem. Yeah, a big one, a huge one. Okay. I, I, I think I think I can I can get behind it a little bit um, in that regard. I just think that like what I find super interesting about VC is all the opportunities that don't make it to the front cover of TechCrunch mm -hmm. because those are the opportunities that generally most people aren't willing to do the hard work to actually get like their hands dirty in. You know what I mean? And Realistically speaking, that's where all the returns will most likely come from because there's so little competition within that space. You know what I mean? So um, that's that's always that's always my thinking. But uh, you know, there's other opportunities or other versions of that where people can prove that you're wrong, right? Like if you were just investing in like Facebook acquire, Facebook acquirable companies in the year 2010, that's a great business. That's a great VC, right? Like if your thesis was just that. Facebook, Twitter, and like all of these big social media companies are overallocated with capital, right? And there's like a very high uh, like hunger and added like um, for um, acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna find this absurd idea that I don't fully understand, but it's growing at a rapid rate on Facebook, and Facebook will eventually either buy it or do something to help um, further its monetization. Yeah. Right? So like I can get behind that because that's that's still a great arbitrage opportunity, you know. Nonetheless, even yeah. though it's not as like sexier, whereas like um, 
you know, bloggable is like investing in like something that's a true infrastructure, like brilliant play, i.e. like an AWS, you know yeah. what I mean? But it's still, it's still interesting nonetheless. We see that in this market. There are funds, which I believe, and this is not what they say, but I believe yeah. their entire investment strategy mm. in an African fintech context is we know that the banks still dominate these markets, the, the, the banks and telcos, right? Yeah. And so our strategy is we know that they need distribution channels. So we're just going to invest in the distribution channels that they yeah. will ultimately have to acquire. Correct. Not because we think that the, the channel itself or the startup itself is going to compete with the bank, yeah. but at some point in the next five to 10 years, that is going to be a distribution channel that the bank cannot ignore and will acquire and we'll be, you know, we'll be there to make our returns. In the meantime, we're going to help them get there okay. to a point where the banks and telcos can't ignore them. Yeah. Which makes sense. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I've seen and I've met people whose entire business thesis for an idea or a concept is just to be acquired. Right? Absolutely. And like some people, like I know, like especially when you get into like very sophisticated tier one markets like San Francisco and London and so on and so forth. I've met like entrepreneurs, especially in like China as well. Like I know an entrepreneur in China who sold three companies to Alibaba. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? Like the guy is working at Alibaba again now. Yeah. And this is his third earnout at Alibaba because he just keeps on identifying opportunities Alibaba can't attack or won't attack. Mm -hmm. He attacks them, grows them with VC capital till they're like just ballooning out of control and size. And then the Ali acquisition team will slide in and be like, we're interested. And then he'll sell them, then move over to Ali. Why not? The, the difficulty though is if you're trying to build something for what you believe is a potential acquirer, yeah. there's, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of concentration risk that's associated with that, right? Risk, yeah. Which you have to be comfortable with. It could work and it could work three times yeah. in some cases, versus building something to solve a market problem that has multiple potential acquirers, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's a great segue, yeah. So, th there's no right. Okay, so, so when you guys, or when you're looking at investments, like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you categorize, how do you classify, what heuristics do you use to help you make like, intelligent decisions in a non-deterministic space like venture? Because like uh, the, the problem, of course, is that like, you know, Steve Jobs walks into Sequoia without clothes on, and he smells like shit, right? <laughs> like, and he builds the most important like computer company of the last forty years, yeah. right? But like none of the Sequoia guys smell like shit and like or barefoot, so it's super hard for them to like access it. But the brilliance of Sequoia, of course, is that they're so freakishly open-minded as a company mm -hmm. and as a firm that like they, this is just from my research, so I don't know if they actually are on the ground. But they have the ability to see past the individual or see past like what other people would see as like red flags and see like, oh, actually, this is actually an opportunity. It's I mean, in any, I guess in any context in life, it's easy to look back and say, Sequoia is really good at making decisions. At this stage, once they've made multiple good decisions and unicorns that they can speak to, mm. But, you know, we're at a point in our market where no one can afford to say that because we're so early on. Yeah. They had to go through an initial period of guessing and uh, taking a lot of losses and those sorts of things. And you, you constantly learn and iterate. And then you have some moment, whether you're a founder or a VC or someone building a traditional business where, or, or even someone work, you know, playing sport, mm. right? 
you could be you could be a brilliant cricketer and you have one innings in the IPL or whatever and then everyone goes oh you know they're really amazing and, and that's your moment where you now build some credibility around your name and that's all it takes and then from there you can afford to take a chance on someone coming in with no clothes or whatnot because mm -hmm. you've built credibility and people are willing to listen to what you say but I mean I, I think what I'm curious about is someone who operates on plays on the operator side, not on the venture side. Yeah, I meet a lot of people and a lot of operators. Yeah, and I always meet. I always find it interesting when I like meet an operator and go, "Hmm, are you the real deal, or are you like a scammer?" You know what I mean. And I've developed my own heuristics around yes. that. You know what I mean. Um, and but if I was a VC, I think there'd be very different heuristics because uh, we'd be playing in a different space altogether. Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? So uh, my heuristics are easy because there's no actual risk. Right, so if I go, oh, that Milan guy, he's great. He's definitely going to succeed. What's the risk? I'm just saying stuff, right? Whereas in your world, you're like, I have to deploy five to ten million rand, you know, to this guy, but like he doesn't have shoes on. Like, <laughs> like this seems a bit odd. Yeah. So it's like it's like of course there's easy heuristics like schools. You know what I mean? Other easy heuristics are like uh, like where you've worked before in the past. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and but then it gets a bit harder when you like are playing in spaces that don't have an Apple or a Google to be a reference point, right? Yes. It's, a, it's even harder when it's like, cool, you studied mechanical engineering at the University of Venda. Hmm, I don't think that's a good mechanical engineering school, but you've built this robot that can like dismantle trees. You know what I mean? Like, are you, is this, is actually, is this actually hard? Like, yeah. like how, do you, how do you filter in that regard? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of, a couple of buckets or categories that you assess, right? Mm -hmm. So the first, and nine out of 10 investors will say, the first is always gonna be the founding team, Yeah. right? So I, I look at one, how, how close are you to the problem itself? Do you have an incredible understanding of the problem that yeah. you're trying to solve? And, and are you loosely connected to the solution? Okay. And a very, very common pitfall that we see is a founder who comes up with a solution and then goes and looks for problems to solve. Yeah, white right? guys in the township, you see it all the time. So, yeah. so are you connected to the problem, loosely connected to the solution and willing to iterate on that yeah. around the problem as you learn and, and, and develop? Yeah. Secondly, have you figured out the type of skill set that you need within your team that is complementary? Have you thought about the sector that you're operating in have you thought about what that requires? Does it require very, very heavy sales capabilities early on? If you're operating in health, depending on that, have you thought really, really deeply about what it actually takes to build a successful business there? And how have you built a team around that? Mm -hmm. And then the, th then the third is, you know, to what extent do you understand that value chain relative to your peers? And how are you demonstrating that to me? Right. So, so that's the three. Th those are the three sort of levers I look at in understanding a founding team. Then there's a you know the market opportunity, and if you decide that you're going to be an investor, it's your responsibility to have a solid understanding of the market opportunity. Right. If you don't, you should have sector specialists and and, mm. and those sorts of things to help you understand that. And then the third component is timing. And people don't like to attribute success or failure 
to timing, but it's a massive. No, no, it's, it's a massive huge, component. Huge, huge. So you could come to me with an incredible idea, but you've come to me at a time where we are about to go into a recession, like you know now what people are talking about in the U.S. and that filtering to us, where there's certain business models that make total sense. Like if you came to me and we just went into lockdown and you had this telemedicine idea and you know stuff that COVID lent itself to. Cool. You could you could build a successful startup, depending on on, on the timing and vice versa. So, mm. those are the those are the ways that we think about it. Where you could potentially have a great idea, great business, great team, but the timing is just yeah doesn't work. Okay. You've been in the space for a bit while, for a while. Um, let's do a thought experiment. You're 18, or let's say you're 21. You just finished Varsity. What kind of business do you think you would start if you're a 21 year old today? Like, it doesn't have to be like, like I would start something for X, you know, yes. like it doesn't have to be like Uber for X or, you know, Coinbase for Y, you know, it's, it's yeah. like just a very broad strokes, like <clears throat> interesting opportunities that a 21 year old can undertake that he won't get out innovated by Amazon or like a huge tech company. Yeah. 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 So I, I developed what I call a 4D model, and it's the way I, I, I look at business opportunities okay. in general in this market. So the 4Ds are, one, we are at a point in our cycle where value chains just need to be digitized as step one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Digitizing a value chain, whatever that may be, and we see this across literally every value chain that we, that we work in. Once you do that successfully, you can then start to create an effective process of decentralization of that value chain. And again, we see this across everything. Decentralization. Mm. Once you do that, you can then start to effectively disintermediate, remove inefficiencies, etc., and then create a data loop, right? That sort of reinforces and helps you go back to the start and digitize other areas, etc. When I look at the world around me, and we were just talking about this, yeah. there are still areas that are ripe for digitization. You could say disruption, but just step one, digitization, yeah, yeah, and making tons, life easier. Tons, tons, the tons. way in which we live our lives and process different elements of getting an ID book and just admin in our daily lives, mm. and having that in a very, very easily workable interface and back end that makes sense that you know if I died tomorrow what's going to happen to everything going on in my life from passwords to yes, you know yes, finances yes, and yes, this and yes, that yes, yes. so if I were to commit There's a kill switch that kicks in when I exactly yeah. so if I were to commit to anything as an idea that I would really want to see because I would love to benefit from that myself <laughs> it, it, it would be it as would be <laughs> some kind of digital Rajiv that can either kick in once <laughs> I die yeah. or shut my, my life down in the most seamless way possible. Okay, okay. I fucking love that and I 100% agree with that and I think it's a huge opportunity. Um, this is a, a, a thought experiment I was playing with a friend of mine the other day. So Siri as um, a piece of technology, um, digital assistance, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when you add digital assistance plus dramatic leaps in deep learning that we're seeing right now with things like GPT-3 and a lot of the works that OpenAI are doing at Dali 2 et cetera, et cetera. 
um, and then you throw in the last wonderful piece of sugar on top there that is like a metaverse or some kind of virtual augmented mm -hmm. reality, which I don't agree with, but we'll talk about that later. Um, your Siri can become a lot more personalized, right? Yes. So if you had a metaverse Siri, who could be a, like an actual digital companion. Yes. Who would you subscribe to or who would you want to have as your digital companion? Who would I want? So who in my physical world? No, no, no. This is like, imagine I can give you like Google Glasses of sorts. Yes. And, but everyone has a Google Glasses. Yes. Right. So I wrote about this a few weeks ago. So like everyone has these digital goggles, right? And so I can see your digital assistant. You can see my digital assistants, but it's just thin air. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And... And, but the same digital system can follow me into the metaverse as well, right? So you've got a Siri. Everyone's got a Siri now, right? Who would you choose to have as your Siri? Because it can be anyone, right? And it can be anything. Yeah. So you could have like, I don't know, you could have like Pepper the Pig as your theoretical Siri. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oof. Okay, I'll let you think about that. I'm going to, yeah. Yeah. It would, be, it would be a character that... I think represents someone who I think is quirky and yeah. you know thinks the way I do. So you know some of the people I follow, the Gary Vaynerchuk's, yeah, Gary yeah. V's, Russell Brands, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So these are people I love listening to, and I would love their persona to be wrapped into yeah. that character that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be fun. I mean, for me personally, it would just be Ja Rule. Because I think it's such a perfume, and it'll be so much fun to have Ja Rule with you every okay. day. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So no, that's great. That's like, great. I'm, I'm sure the fire, I'm super I'm sure the fire yeah, party exactly. would be amazing. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, like I, I watched the fire festival documentary, and I was like, that 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 poor kid, like, he doesn't know what the hell he was doing, and like, I'm not gonna ascribe like extreme malice to him because he doesn't seem yeah. smart enough to be that malicious. He yeah. just seemed like someone who ran out of road essentially, and he was trying to like pay Peter to pay Paul. So like, my heart goes out to him. But Ja Rule is my favorite cartoon character because he's such a buffoon. The whole documentary. Okay. And like okay. the best part about it is when the kid got arrested. Ja Rule went to like TV and was like, if you're gonna arrest anyone, arrest me. I was the mastermind. But he knows nothing about the whole thing. So I'm just saying, for my own mental health, yeah. like a serious person wouldn't work. It would have to be a clown. And I can't think of any greater clown on planet Earth today than Ja Rule. He's the greatest clown out there who comes close, right? Okay. Like, he's the best in my mind. I can't think of anyone who's, like, on Ja Rule's level of being a buffoon. Yeah? You okay. Because, like, Boris Johnson's not actually a full-blown buffoon. He plays a role, you know, half the time. Yeah, right? so you need, you need an actual clown. Yeah, and, like, Ja Rule's the best because he's also, like, this short and he's got, like, a do-rag on and he's, like, murder ink shit all day, every day. Whatever works. Whatever works. I think that there's I... a trillion-dollar opportunity that no one's looking into, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, the, yeah. the, 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 your, the, the personal assistant digit, market, yeah. digital assistant market, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. I would so love be, a digital assistant. Yeah, that would be fucking amazing. Everyone would love a digital assistant. That would be yeah. amazing, all right? Yeah. Like, because, like, there's still a lot of things that I, I can't outsource, you know what I mean? And, like, I would love a digital assistant yeah. that, like, is like, hey, hurry the fuck up, you're going to be late, you know what I mean? Like, oh, shit, yeah, you see what I'm saying? Or, like, anything along those lines. You can, like, optimize it from there. Um, you went to UCT, right? Yes. Let's talk a bit about your background. Where did it all begin? 
It began, so I spent the first seven-ish years of my life in PE, okay. Port Elizabeth. Is that Copera? Yes, Copera. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. It'll always be PE in my mind. So, <laughs> so that's where, that's where I, I grew up. Uh, my parents split when I was seven, moved to Durban with nice. my mom, nice. my sister and I. Uh, moved in with my grandparents cool. in, Very cool. in Durban, so I went to school there. And I think I, I, I sort of I describe myself as a product of my environment, right? Yeah. As as everyone is. Yeah, because both your parents are VCs, right? And both my parents yeah. are lawyers by training. Hectic. And so there was this expectation that you become a lawyer. I would be a lawyer. Yeah. And the only reason I didn't even consider that as a career option is just because it was expected. Yeah. yeah. So it was so a rebellious sort of... Yeah, looking yeah, yeah. back, I think I could have enjoyed it as a career, but it wasn't even... I, I just I wanted you to rebel. Wasted. I think you would have been wasted. Uh, I, I've become a sort of de facto... default. I call myself an honorary lawyer because as yeah. an investor, the number of legal documents I look at... Correct, correct. Uh, I, I feel like... You know, yeah. I am partly a lawyer. So I feel anyway, like a huge waste for South Africa if you were a lawyer. Go through, go through my my schooling years uh, in a very, I would say, sheltered environment. Yeah. I didn't have any aspirations beyond a sort of 10, 20 kilometer radius. Mm. Uh, and then I think as I got to the end of my high school career, I knew that I felt trapped. I wanted more. So where did you go to high school, if I may ask? I went to a school called Northwood in in Durban Yeah, I know Northwood. So like they play rugby, so I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're not that good, but and, and, and I think the thing I struggled with the most was I didn't have, it was a lack of mentorship and I, I didn't understand the world around me beyond a sort of, you know, 20 kilometer radius. Yeah. And, and I wanted to change that. And for me at the time, getting from Durban to Cape Town was like breaking out of that. Yeah. I, get, just getting to Cape Town was going to be incredible for me in terms of like broadening my horizons and perspective and stuff like that. Can I ask a question? Yes. Were you a colorful cartoon character in a black and white school? No, I, I think I was pretty conventional. I was an overachiever academically, yeah. uh, sort of by the book, uh, okay. you know, very academically inclined. I did extra, I was, I was on the debating team, I participated in like cultural things, I played sport, whatever. Very, very like, you know, I fitted into the mold mm. very well mm -hmm. because in my mind, you did that, you got a good tertiary education and then you got a stable job mm. and you followed a very, very traditional trajectory. Mm. And that's why I mean, like I, I was, it, it was very sort of mono in, in, in that sense. So when does it stop being monochromatic and start getting So then I figured out, well, if, if I'm going to break out of the cycle and get to Cape Town, which was like the, you know, the Mecca at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I was in the same Mecca. You if know, if I'm going to go yeah. there, I need to figure out how I'm going to get myself there. So I managed to get the financing, scholarship, whatever. And that's, I think, where timing becomes really, Anything. really, because I was then surrounded by people who came from wealthy families, whose parents were encouraging them to look outside of the country, to look more globally. They spent all their holidays traveling to the US and this and that. And I was like, hold on. Like, I thought Cape Town was like, you know, incredible, but there's a whole world outside of this mm. that my friends are being encouraged to tap into by their parents and mentors. And so I kind of accessed 
that thought process and that mentality indirectly and I got sucked in. I was like, look, I need to think on a, on a broader level and so I started thinking about how I'm going to access that and at the time you either did that by joining a global management consulting, strategy consulting or investment banking as the two sectors that were yeah. going to afford you the ability to experience the world. Yeah. And so, so you were a finance grad, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. So that's yeah. exactly what I did. And what year were you matriculating? I'm, I matriculated 2006 and I graduated from my undergrad at UCT 2010. Okay, so you're an 88 baby. Yes. Okay. What was it like growing up in Durban? Because like we were, we were the first like... Uh, you were the first like animals they sent to slaughter, to slaughter in like this integration like experiment that just made like that that gave us such amazing opportunities to experience the wildest, weirdest things. You know what I mean? I guess when you're in it, that's your norm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I had, I, when I look back now, I had, as I describe it, a very typical for that environment, like conventional life, mm -hmm. which is like nothing too exciting. But at the time. Life was great. Yeah. I had friends. I went out. Durban weather. I dated. I you had, had Durban, Durban weather. weather. I had a loving family, and so life was great. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't really complain about anything other than when I got to a stage where I felt like there had to be more mm -hmm. outside of that. Yeah. But up until that point, life was life. I was super committed to excelling academically, okay. and and. and uh, where do you think that came from? That desire to excel academically. So, was it having a black mom? <laughs> no. So, so, so <laughs> where that, that came from was yeah. when when we moved to Durban uh, and growing up in a single parent household. Okay. I I, I had, I, I guess I sort of carried a bit of resentment, and I looked around me and what my friends and peers had mm. because they came from you know a, a home with more money and whatnot, and I I said to myself I looked in the mirror every day and I was like you are going to grow up and be successful yeah. so you can be an amazing father. Correct. And it's, in, it's so incredible how that gave me this drive that I can't describe. It's, it's completely indescribable. But I woke up at a certain time every day. I went to bed late. I, I really excelled mm. because I had this drive to be an incredible father to make up for what I didn't have. And what's funny about that is you get to a point later on in life where you're like, ah, do I want that for myself, for my life? And then you start to think about things differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But from the age of about 9, 10 up until 20, that was my driving force that gave me all the energy I needed to, to excel. Yeah. Uh, and I'm happy that it did. So you almost like weaponized the toxicity, Absolutely. Right? And I'm a huge fan of that, personally. Yeah. Like, I believe that like... If you are experiencing a toxic environment, you need to learn how to like turn that nuclear waste into like reusable nuclear uh, fluids. You yeah. see what I'm saying? And look, I wouldn't say it was a. It de I definitely didn't come from a toxic environment. Mm. I just felt that when I compared myself relatively to those around me yeah. and what I had seen, that there was a lot that I wanted that I, I couldn't access at the time. Mm. But the environment that I had was definitely not toxic. It was absolutely... No, 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 no. I, I, rather the, the, the toxicity of not having a two-parent yes. household as yes. opposed to, like, you living in a toxic household yes. with, like, a crazy parent. No, no, no. I mean, I feel like that's, a, that's an interesting opportunity that not enough people in our society, like, identify and appreciate. Mm. Because, like, uh, like, I know a lot of... I know a lot of kids who are successful and who were, like, just set up for life. You know yes. what I mean? Came from a good family, good education, lots of money, 
and like their parents were actually good parents, right? And then I know a lot of kids who are like, have just this odds stacked up against them and they succeed. And I find that those kids who succeed are, you know, quote unquote, the real ones versus the kids who've just had like a very um, clear path to success. Because the kids who have to like figure it out, like you said, you have to organize financing. Like organizing financing was like the foundation of your success today. Yeah. Because you now have to have autonomy to go out in the world and like ask these really weird questions that don't make sense when you're 17, right? Yeah. Like it's so hard to understand like how a bursary works and then like how scholarships work and then like how student financing works. I mean, I remember when I was 19, I got offered, um, I got a place at an American university and then through this one company, I got offered a student loan that was like pretty considerable, like in terms of the amount of money they were giving me and like, Everything looks great on paper. And then like I started like Googling this really weird idea. I didn't fully understand of an interest rate. You know, and then I was like, I wonder what that is. Because like you're too young to fully grasp what's actually going on, you know? And yeah. then I was like, and I just spent a long time Googling and like researching interest rates. Because I was like, everything else makes sense. And then like when I eventually figured it out, I was like, oh crap, I'm never taking that. I was like, this is this is indentured labor. Like I'm eventually gonna be a slave to these people, you know? So so that's why I say like I feel like Whenever I hear people's stories like yours, I'm always like, yeah, but your hustle, your grind stems from an inability, from like a lack that has to build an ability around it, if that makes any sense. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, I, I use a stupid example, like I hate reality TV. Yeah. But I absolutely love the exception for me is talent shows because I think most reality TV is the furthest from reality. Yeah. It's completely staged. But talent shows, when I watch, I'm not an emotional person. Like I'll go to funerals or people I know very close to, like I struggle to like come to bring myself to tears. Mm. I just don't get emotional. But when I watch someone who's completely outliving their circumstance because they have some talent, whether it's singing or dancing or, or whatever, and I see them being given the opportunity and the stage to excel and, and get the recognition and flourish beyond their circumstance. That is, that is a concept that I am obsessed with and that brings me to tears. Yes, okay, right? I completely agree with you on that. But what gets lost in that is the nuance that you could have people who come from you know, financially constrained environments and whatnot, which many people around us do, and watching someone outperform their trajectory or, or sort of you know live beyond that because they figured out a way is really great but the people who do come from wealth or who do come from resources etc they can equally do that the bar is just set higher so fundamentally I what, what I'm obsessed with is watching someone outperform their given set of circumstances mm. And that just depends on what the starting point is. So I've got friends who come from, every, they literally would not need to, to work. They didn't want to. They didn't want to go to university work. They didn't need to. So the bar is just set higher. But those people are equally inspiring where they choose to outlive their circumstance by doing X, Y, Z beyond yeah. what is expected of them. Okay. I feel like... It's, it's, just, it's just harder when they come from like an easy background because like, um, well not an easy, but an easier background because the, you don't get to experience like the insanity of it all. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I think 
having a struggle and going through like shit is often what people tell themselves to make themselves feel better about not having X, Y, Z. I completely agree that it creates this hustle and drive and whatnot, but I don't think it needs to happen on the level that it does around us for people no, no, to no, do no, incredible no, things. No, 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 no. It's I, a coping yeah, mechanism. Yeah, 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 Let's yeah. not forget that. Yeah, yeah, human suffering is avoidable. But it's yes, also, yes, yes, yes. It, it can also be used productively, like I've described in my small example, like you would have. Uh, but it's, it's very contextual. And I I've sometimes... It's dangerous to, to make yes. a sweeping statement. I empathize yeah, yeah, with yeah. those who were, like, the reality is the majority of us were born into less than and had to kind of make the most of. Yeah. But then equally, there are those who are born into more than they should have. It's not their fault. What they choose to do with that is what I judge them on, not the fact that they had everything. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think maybe you're right. I think there's a large chance that I'm romanticizing a lot of this as someone who grew up in poverty. You know what I mean? But I, I do you watch any sports? Do you, do you? Most sports. Okay. So, so like, you know, I grew up in a, in a household that was in like love with running rugby. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, I always say that it's always, it's like attacking on your try line is the true sign of like greatness in my mind. It's like taking the risk of running the ball in like the most dangerous parts of the field is like the best place to do it yeah. because the other team is like is clamoring for you to make a mistake so in that they're going to open up a lot more space for success you're right and then yeah. so, so so it's almost like the risk is enormous on running the ball in your try line right but if the success is enormous as well because scoring a try from your own try line is a lot easier than scoring from the middle of the field because there's so much more room for disruption you know yeah. what i mean so like, I, I think my example is more like, I love it to when I see people who took absurd circumstances and still made something happen out of them. Because that's always like, that's always like, that's the taste of human ingenuity. You know what here's, I mean? Here's, so the way I think about it, and I'm not sure if I came up with this or if I got it from somewhere, but I've been talking yeah. about it for so many years that I can't remember where it came from. Yeah. You should drink a lot of the sacks then. The, 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 this concept of an adaptability quotient. AQ. Hey, okay. Have you, no, have you come but across this? No, this okay. is a bad blood so, post so, I'm going to so, do one day. So here's, here's, here's where what we're talking about becomes relevant. So I can come from resources where I'm able to flex my intellect because I have access to smart people and, yeah. and, and, and knowledge and, and resources and whatnot. So my IQ and my level of intellect could be incredible right so the way i define aq so your aq is equal to your iq mm. plus your eq now what tends to happen is if you don't have the real life struggles and experiences your eq is not developed yeah, yeah. as much so your iq could be great but your eq is not that developed and therefore your aq which you ultimately need to succeed is not as developed as it should be right so what we're saying is that there's real life dealing with someone being on your try line. If you haven't gone through that and developed your EQ and the ability to deal with people in a real life setting, mm. your AQ is going to be limited. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sam Altman has a really great uh, talk about this. Not AQ. You, I think you, you might have um, coined that term right now in here. Um, I think it's a great idea, by the way, and I think you should develop it further. Because okay. I think you've got the you've got like Kanye West's uh, college drop out there. Yeah, it's like 
five good songs and 15 terrible songs, but these are the five best songs you've ever heard in your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So like, there were parts of that I was like, whoa, that's an incredibly groundbreaking. But you need to find the other five songs to yeah. make it a 10-song album. And then you've got a really interesting concept there. Um, I got a bit distracted by that. No, I think EQ is everything. And I think you can see it in real life, right? Because you look at someone like, and I think you, the, the thing to, 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 to extend that a bit is like, you look at some of the great entrepreneurs of our lifespan, you know, as human beings. Um, and like, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are like brilliant, but like are brilliant for their time, right? But then there are others who are timeless, essentially. Yeah. And the thing about the timeless ones is that they all have the same AQ. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? And like, you look at someone like um, Steve Jobs, as an example, has the highest AQ in the world. You know what I mean? Like, theoretically speaking, because... He, 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 like, he, he essentially, like, he wills the computer revolution into existence, you know, with a whole bunch of other players, you know what I mean? And, you know, if someone like a Mr. Jobs came into anywhere and any time in the, the tech cycle, you feel like he'd still succeed because he's so incredible, you know what I mean? Um, and, and I think around the adaptability question, that's such a great way of putting it because my heuristic was always that the struggle would create the adaptability but it's not necessarily a consequence of that exclusively, right? Yeah. Like, you can still have a high AQ without having to struggle. Yes. And, like, um, going back to what I was saying about Sam Altman earlier, um, Sam Altman's got this really great uh, talk he does, I think, with his brother or someone, and he talks about um, there's, like, there's, like, there's founder resilience mechanisms that are built into the startup world. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, you need to almost fail about two or three times as a company because the first time you do it, you're literally going to have sleepless nights. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to sleep. You're going to lose weight. You're, gonna, like, you're just going to have awful, awful nights. And I've had these, right? The second time is you're going to lose sleep, but you're not going to lose weight, mm. right? And the third time is you're going to sleep like a baby. Mm. Because you know that, like, I need eight hours of sleep or I need seven hours of sleep. So, like, panicking about this doesn't change anything. You know what I mean? And I think what's hard about founders, especially first-time founders, is that, like, you can't teach that. It's kind of hard, you know. It's a lot easier when you've had to struggle through things to do that, yeah. because you've, you've you've identified this feeling before. You're like, oh, I know this. This is like the one time my parents ran out of money and I couldn't go to school, and then I had to lie to like survive, you know, and keep in school. This is just that, but like in a different format, right? But if you haven't had that like ability or that that gift of the the, the panic and terror. It's hard to like face it down if it's the first time you're facing it down. Yeah. You know, if it's like if it's the tenth time you're facing it down, then like you're pretty zen. You know what I mean? Like I've got I've got friends who work in like finance, and I've got a friend of mine whose father was like brilliant in finance, and he lives in the UK. And I asked him about 2008, and he was like, "What was it like?" And he was like, "You're shit." And I was like, "What did you do?" And he's like, "I was on the holiday for a week." And he was like, "What you going on holiday? The market's exploding." He was like, "Either the markets are going to collapse, and..." Like, I was going to be out of a job on Monday. You know what I mean? Or I was going to come back and have had a week to think without the noise of everyone screaming around me. You know what I mean? And I was like, wow, you have such big balls. He's like, no, I've been through four recessions. You see what I'm saying? Well, also, you have to have the safety net and the risk appetite to get to that point where you can afford to say, I'm going to do what's good for me in this situation. Yeah. And that's what I often struggle with in our market when you talk about an African founder and not having a safety net. And, you know, you could be a Silicon Valley, LA, San Francisco, New York based founder and you go, I'm going to put everything into this. Take nothing away from what that requires. 
But if it doesn't go well, I move into my parents' home and, you know, I can start again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. almost what you need in order to do something as high risk as building a startup requires, right? Mm, you can't do that if you're supporting your parents. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. And so it's the majority hard. of the founders in our market have that mentality where they go, like, this has to work. And if it doesn't, I don't know. And, and so it dissuades most people in the first Huge place. Huge amount of them. Yeah. Right, because you don't have that risk appetite. So I'd rather go work at Standard Bank mm. so that I can support my parents and my family and this and, and my kids. Also, etc. Standard Bank are smart as well. Like, let's not underestimate their intelligence and understanding that inflating um, corporate salaries also ensures that these people cannot leave these same yeah, corporate salaries. Yeah, you know, of course. Of course. And like, it's very shout out to them transactional. Most, so yeah, it's very clandestine as well. You know what I mean? Like, because it it hurts the great the macro economy much more than it does the like the the, the battle between the big four banks for talent. Yeah, I mean, supply, supply, demand, right? It's, it's, it, it all comes back to that. So yeah, with perverted policy, shout out to be. <laughs> there we go. I mean, that again, you know, chatting to to people in Cape Town, for example, and you and you listen to a white man talk about, uh, you know, people, and and this is someone I know, and and he's very, very switched on and, and aware of the cultural nuances, etc. And he goes, I, I, I. I've been an entrepreneur and I work in, in, in the world of startups, etc. Not because I feel like that's the best use of my skill set, but every time I'm up against a certain demographic in a corporate environment, I'm on the back foot mm. and I struggle to get a corporate job because I'm the wrong gender and the wrong race. Mm. And that's fine because I understand the bigger picture and what we're trying to achieve. But that's why more people like me are encouraged to try this as an alternative because we're on a sort of back foot when it comes to the cushy corporate job and those sorts of things. Yeah, which could still right? be a good thing. Which, yeah. So, but, but, but we sometimes don't unpack that one level further and understand that perspective. Yeah. And then we go to a Cape Town event and go, why is this full of white men, mm. you know? Without asking about what, what are their the macro, journey Yeah, and uh, what are the macro policies that have created this And we need a combination of all of these things, but it's also helpful talking about the EQ side of things to have the conversation and understand what each perspective may or may not be before judging an event for being a white male thing. Yeah, I think also at the same time that like, I think that it's a very, it's a consequence of Twitter and Twitter culture that like we jump on people and try to like murder them if like um, with like with great abandonment i think it's like part of the human genetic condition but i think like like i i i consistently get asked to like cancel things in people all the time and i'm like no i'm just not going to cancel it and they're like why because i got shit to do i don't care about this thing it's like irrelevant like why must i care about two millionaires fighting in court like fuck off like i don't want to deal with that or it's like oh but this person did this and this and so and so person all the time it's like so what that's got nothing to do with me in the greatest scheme of things these aren't real people these are fiction like fictional characters you know what i mean yeah like like we've always got to like separate that from reality and then like yes there are gigantic structural limitations in our country but we're not also like looking at solutions that can like undo them instead we're just pointing the finger and saying fuck you you know this is an all-white event right and i'm like but then how do you make it all white like have you have you actually asked that question like what's your solution to that you know other times it's like most of the time it's like mudslinging right it's like ah you're just a friend of white monopoly capital and I'm like, well, not a friend, but I do follow him on Twitter, you know. <laughs> like, he kills my ass. Well, it's, like, 
again, it's the time horizon. I bring everything back down to this and this concept of short-termism. And so you can, you can talk about this in a sporting context when you talk about like a national team and what that should represent mm. relative to a demographic. You can talk about it in VC. You can talk about it in many contexts, right? The reality is that most people don't have yeah. the time horizon to invest in building a pipeline of talent to compete on an even playing field in order for that national team or startup or whatever it is to be representative of the underlying population, right? And then what we do is we say, oh, you need to implement a certain policy at that top level when you yeah, haven't yeah, built the yeah. right pipeline. Yeah, and I think the problem with it as well is that it's like, it's, it's like, e e are you familiar with Matt Ridley by any chance? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, a great evolution of everything. Not, I, I just generally... Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, next time I see you, I'll bring you evolution of everything. It's yes. amazing, it's amazing. Um, the, the, the thing about it is that, like, I think there's, there's a series of different, like, forms of malware in our society. You know, like, there's all kinds of malware in the human, like, consciousness game. And the one that, like, is consistently applied in, around these kinds of questions mm. is that, like, if you fix the head of the snake, the rest of it will, like, solve itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then like you go hang out with like Patrice Montepe's staff and it's just like five white guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> Actually happened. Um, you know? Or even like Cyril's stuff. There's a lot of white people there as well, right? And he's a fucking president. You know what I mean? Um, and then like, as opposed to saying like, what, what can we do to like, 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 what's the, what's like, okay, so like basketball, right? There's a great example of this. Um, European white men, like, are disproportionately outperforming like white American men within the NBA repeatedly, right? So all the best white players in the NBA are all European, okay. right? And a large consequence of that, a large reason for that is because during the Soviet era and the central planning like nightmare that they lived through, right? They would like create recreational centers in a town. There's one rec center in this town, right? It's got a, two basketball courts, got two netball courts, swimming, damn it, next town, bah. So, a lot of Soviet and a lot of kids who grew up in the like in the Iron Curtain, right? All grew up underneath the Iron Curtain. All grew up with a shit ton of like resources around sports, mm -hmm. right? So that culture of basketball, without any state support, yes, is so damn strong yep. that like the last two MVPs in the NBA have been white guys, and they've both been Eastern European. Oh, it's one guy. They've, they've, it's always Eastern European, right? And like the last white African, Amer the white last white American MVP. I think in 1986, it was Larry Bird, <laughs> right? Every single other white guy since then has been some form of like an Eastern European. And so, so you need to create systems yeah. akin to the Eastern European basketball system where it doesn't matter what you throw at this thing. It organically starts to churn these things out quite aggressively, right? And like, you, you, the, the problem is, is that like our, our current malware problem is that we keep on saying, well, you know, Elon Musk is the problem. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's like, that's just an easy scapegoat. Why aren't you creating an environment that like allows us to fight, identify more of these people and support them, but in, in, an, in an unstoppable kind of way? Do you see what I'm saying? And I think it's too easy to like, to say that like, I don't know, the proteas are too white. Like the, the underlying question I ask is like, are there like a thousand black cricket players who are like capable of playing pro, yes or no? And the answer is no, go, we'll start there first and foremost, yeah. right? And then like, once you've figured out how to make sure that's almost impossible to stop, it's kind of like what you see with like the Springboks now, 
right? It's like, there's no fucking B, um, what's called, um, what's the term? Quota. Quota system or, yeah, yeah, affirmative action, whatever. Because there's no need to go and find great black rugby talent. It's all available on TV, on like Pseudosport right now, right? And like, if you look at the, the Springbok team right now, I think there's only like, okay, there's two, but in the greater squad, the rest of them all went to top tier schools. And these top tier schools all like have created vacuums for like great black talent, which mm. is literally just the Eastern Cape. So it's like, it's like, it's like Kez and JP or just the Eastern Cape. Like do yourself a favor, Google Kez and JP game right now. Yeah. And it's just Klosser guys. Just, it's like 50 Klosser guys versus 50 Klosser guys essentially. Who come here? Yeah, it's like it's ridiculous. Like now, Kez okay. and like JP do this now. What they do is they literally have a vacuum cleaner at Queens College, Selborne College, all these like great school where rugby is like, like the life force of these communities. Yeah, you know what I mean. And they play the sexiest form of rugby possible, right? And then they say, "Cool, here's a free ride," and they just vacuum them up. You know, um, the, Afri- the Afrikaans schools in the Cape do the same thing, except they're in the color community. And like now in Joburg, you go to Craven Week, and it's just like 15 plus names all of a sudden. When I was in school, there was like not a closer guy in the whole team. Now there's like a hundred, you know what I mean? And it's because like they've, they've created this unstoppable force now where yeah. the economic benefits of CARES having a good rugby team are so great that CARES consistently keeps this vacuum cleaner open, right? So now SA Rugby doesn't have to get involved. You know, there's no like need for grassroots programs. It's like there's a very like problematic but still v- visible and available platform. To, to, to usher this talent into the system, you know what I mean? And until we have that with other parts of our economy, you can't just keep on like, just, you know, pop smoking people into positions because like, we need to hit certain targets. Yeah. You know? I think targets are very pervasive and very like insidious actually. Um, it's, yeah. it's something I often, like I empathize a lot with millennials in general, like people growing up now where you've just got it's it's this it's the paradox of choice yeah right so your example of like soviet union where you know in my spare time i'm going to play basketball that's what i'm going to do and then you you build this culture and it you know transcends generations etc etc because that was the culture it wasn't like hey go find your passion and try a hundred things and then see and then we want certain representation in all 100 disciplines and whatnot because that, that's like, it's nice and it's romantic in theory, but very difficult in practice when you're trying to achieve certain outcomes across every spectrum or every discipline, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's a big issue now where you've got, like, you know, this paradox of choice where there's all these alternatives, and it's the same thing with information. We now have, you know, where we've come out of a world where we had a lack of access because it was very centralized, and now it's just all over and we have information overload and it's the ability to filter. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of a parallel there as well where it's just, it's difficult where you've got, uh, you know, overload of choice, information, people, etc. And, and, and the, the critical skill set now is to make decisive decisions, to filter effectively and building that toolkit to do that is what's really important is and a critical, I think underrated. Is a critical skill not like rampant curiosity though in my mind? In my mind, I feel like that's more important. Because the problem is that- if you, Sure, yeah. 
if you're not open-minded, how are you gonna like be able to make the right decisions with such an abundance amount of information? Exactly. So, 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 so that curiosity. I mean, going back to to my example, I had that at one point, mm. and that changed my life, right? Uh, but and if you were myopic and you were like parochial and you were yes. like, oh, I'm just gonna be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, and like, exactly. I just wanna be a partner at Bowman's. Yes, you'd be there, but you'd be like deeply unhappy and like you'd be a, we are such a waste for our society. Although it's difficult to know what the alternative yes, you we know, don't would, have would, would, yes, yeah, would yeah, have yeah. been. Yeah. But I agree 100% and that goes back to probably a whole podcast on education and the way we teach and the ability to learn, yeah. not to receive a set of facts and regurgitate. And to self-teach. So there's well. a, lot of the, the, a lot of the issues we face as a society stems from the way students children teenagers are taught and and that is the ability to unlearn bad habits mm. the ability to ask questions mm. and learn for life mm. and learn to learn versus mm. what I did in school uh, which is why I wanted to go back and do a master's etc because growing up I was I was not interested in learning to learn you were chasing those a rubric. I was chasing a piece of paper so yeah. I could go out and start earning an income yeah, I didn't yeah, care yeah. about anything else that was that was a, my means to, to the end yeah okay okay I'm gonna make a huge leap now let's jump to your philosophy of three yeah talk to me about that yeah I I, I think in very structured ways I tried to come up with frameworks mostly to make to make it easier for myself to process and, and I talk in those structures and frameworks to others like I've done with my 4D model, mm. as an example. And I, over the last couple of years, as I've done writing and thought about my views of the world, what I've realized is that a lot of what I think about and the way the world works around me comes down to a single word, which is coexistence, and three, three sort of buckets of coexistence uh, beneath that. You and can unpack that? And so the way I think about the world around me under this concept of coexistence is every, everything we do to try to progress and move forward as a society, to me, falls under three large buckets. The first is the way we coexist with each other, right? So the way in which we trade, the way in which uh, our societies are run, the way in which we govern ourselves. In 2022, we still have not figured out a way to coexist with each other. And that's seen by mm. war mm. and everything that goes on around us, mm. achieving parity in terms of healthcare outcomes, financial outcomes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, just so, vaccinations, you, you know, know might, the, yeah, just at the base level, nothing. There's very little parity anyway. So, you if know. you take a, a system, and you know, you can argue on, on either side of this, but if you take a system like blockchain, for example, there's a fellow that uh, she she teaches. A, a course at, at the University of Oxford, which is where I did my master's, and she teaches a course called Trust in the Digital Age. And she talks about the, the evolution of trust over time, where initially trust was very, uh, it was peer-to-peer -peer based, very, very centralized, localized within communities. You wouldn't trust anyone outside of your community, but that was very limiting as the world expanded yep. and globalization. Yep. So we went from localized mm -hmm. trust to a period of institutional trust where we outsource that. In order for us to trade, we had to outsource that to banks and large corporates and organizations. And now we've moved on to the third wave, which is 
all-time low when it comes to institutional trust, governmental trust, etc. So now we've, we're trying to figure out a, a system of decentralized or distributed trust, right? And, and figuring out the mechanism that facilitates that is where we are now. And that falls into my first bucket of how are we going to coexist with each other going forward, yeah. right? So it's all of those sorts of things, trade, etc. The second bucket is the way we coexist with the natural world around us. So, you know, we've, the big one there is obviously sustainability from a planet Earth perspective. Okay. Yeah. How do, you know, sense. global warming and all of those things, but interplanetary existence and whatnot. So how do, we, how do we continue to coexist given everything that we're doing to the world around us? The third bucket is how are we going to coexist with machines going forward? Singularity, all of those sorts of things. And I mean, even today, right? Like that's the singularity exactly. in my mind. Exactly. We've outsourced our thinking to a device. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we Elon are helpless Musk, without it. Elon Musk talks about this, and this is core to his Neuralink business. Yeah, yeah. Right. Where his argument, which I believe, is that we still have the most amazing processing power in our brain relative mm. to any machine. The difficulty we have as human beings is our input-output bandwidth, and if we're not able to improve that, then we're not going to, even with the most amazing processing power, we can't compete with machines around us. Yeah. So how do we symbiotically coexist with machines going forward? And so those are the, the, the three themes or buckets and the way in which I think about the world under the concept of coexistence. And if anything we're doing is not moving forward one of those three agendas, then you know, I question whether that's relevant. Okay, okay, okay. Um, interesting. So, humanity, how do we live together? How do we live with the planet? And how do we live with machines? Okay. Can you think of things that do not fall within that bucket, just as an example? No. Okay. What about people who are, like, actively pursuing, like, wildly problematic, like, divisive strategies for, like, um, consensus, like people like, um, like people like the ultrights and like um, Mr. Trump and gang, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean they're like actively going against bucket one, right? Yeah, so I'm saying if we are going to progress oh. as a society, okay. yeah, 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 it, yeah. It, in my mind, should have a natural place within one of those three buckets. Okay, of course you're going to have people detracting from that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so then I think just to. To, to, to touch base on one of these things, um, specifically when you're talking about healthcare. What's your, what's your thesis on healthcare and like uh, healthcare from a startup perspective? Um, I'm extremely bullish on healthcare. In fact, biotechnology primarily, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, I, as we were discussing earlier, I think the next great opportunity is not going to be Web3. I think it's going to be biotech. But um, I'm also talking about uh, <laughs> a lot more uh, homebrew versions of biotech. So less uh, Moderna and more uh, hacky, you know, mm -hmm. more biohacking, if that yeah. makes any sense. Because I feel like everything in the biohacking space looks exactly like the early computing space. And like the amount of people I meet in the early computing space is just in the early in the biohacking space. They have the right uh, spirit and philosophy for it, right? You know, it's like, so it's like my big, my big gripe with Web3 is there are very few people who are hacking just for the sake of hacking. And that is like something that like is a huge red flag for me, right? So like every single time I meet someone who's got a Web3 company, you know, they're like, they're, they're like way too MBA and not enough hack, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And like, I love people who hack away at things because 
our entire society and species is just a series of really great hackers working together to build things that we didn't think were possible. You know. What I mean? Yeah. So, like, what's your view on healthcare, especially in Africa? Where do you think the opportunities are, and how do you see it as a whole? Because, like, we're living in a country with two fundamentally different healthcare systems, and that are going to be merged into one, which is the NIH, NHI, I think, whatever the fuck that is, and like. Where, where does healthcare go? What makes you excited about it? Yeah, just give me your thesis on it. Two, two fundamental buckets within the, the, the concept of healthcare. One is uh, continuing on this journey to create access. Uh, and and that's, very, that's a very reactive sort of uh, healthcare discipline. Um, and then there's proactive healthcare, and that's where your biotech and those sorts of things become really, really uh, important as inputs. So, 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 so just be clear, we have proactive and reactive. Proactive right? and reactive. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Right? And both are equally important. Dramatically. Right? Yeah, because so, it started with both be dead. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What's, what's become apparent over the last 10, 15, 20 years is the value of data in allowing us to do more on the proactive side. Yeah. Well, reactive as well in, in, in sort of connecting us, right? So the ability, so uh, yeah. yeah. So my, my 4D model, as an example, when you talk about digitizing a value chain, being able to decentralize, disintermediate, and, and using data, right, has done an incredible amount in the African context for access to healthcare, where people have been able to do that just because of data uh, and the ability to access people they would not, not have. What's and, and I, I did a talk on this two weeks ago in Cape Town where we, the, the topic of conversation was sustainability and, and, and climate change, et cetera. And I drew this analogy between healthcare and climate or sustainability because what, what's happened over our history is that with climate, things we can't see around us that we really need to be acting on uh, we, we, we don't because we don't have the right data points because okay. we, we can't see it. Yeah. Similarly, 75% of deaths worldwide come from non-communicable diseases, mm. right? Cancer, diabetes, all of those sorts of things, which we don't know because we, we can't see, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so data has done an incredible amount for us to become more proactive and to deal with those sorts of things, getting incredible healthcare outcomes. I mean, uh, you know, just because we have visibility of something that we previously didn't. So there's, all, you know, the benefit of the democratization of data, the ability to do meaningful things with that, mm. the significant advancements in technology, you know, being able to perform surgery using uh, glasses and, you know, all of those sorts of things, precision medicine uh, is, is, is incredible. But I don't think we should lose sight of the, the, the core problem, which is overpopulation and the, the, the self-inflicted burden that we're placing on ourselves for the access bucket. So we're, we're, we're constantly trying to catch up to access to this, access to that, because we're generating new human beings at an unsustainable rate. So you know, the, all of these okay. things are, are so interdependent, uh, but I mean, that's something that we can chat about. So within, within healthcare, two main buckets, that's the way I think about healthcare. Mm. Within that, there's a lot that you can unpack, but data, helping both of those advance both the reactionary or reactive and 
proactive, I think is incredible. I'm also a fan of like all of the innovation in biotech and what we're able to do because we have access to data and innovation. In, I mean, simple example, we've recently invested in a business in South Africa uh, and all they're doing, I mean, is they're digitizing all of the images that come through a microscope. And just because of that in real time, you can do exponentially more than okay. a lab technician can by looking at a slide it's a, it's a and then manually process. Yeah. Game changing. It changes everything, yeah. Right? Uh, so, you know, so there's hundreds slow. of those examples. Yeah. So essentially, you're saying this is this, the surface area for like innovation is just infinite in this space at the moment because there's so much that we still need to do. I mean, th think about it this way. We, we already know, and, and we, there's so much going on within the discipline of healthcare when it comes to understand, you know, uh, mental health and you know, yeah, neuroscience. Okay. Yeah, and that's based on 2% of the brain that we understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I see right? what you mean. So it's like, it doesn't matter what part of the body or the human experience you're looking at, there's so much work still to be done there. Okay. Any cool companies that you've seen in healthcare that like inspire you or made you think twice? I mean, the, I, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, some of the companies that we're working with who are just, they're innovating, they're building cool IP. So one that I spoke of now uh, called Vitruvian MD, we're invested in another business called Envision at Deep AI. Again, using technology, combining AI with uh, medical imagery yeah. and being able to essentially look at an X-ray, CT scan, whatever, uh, and immediately they can analyze, I think it's, it's about 2,000 images per minute, mm. and immediately highlight the high-risk cases. Okay, yeah. So in a resource-constrained environment, if number 1,998 is the one you should be prioritizing, no human being can get to it that quickly. Correct, correct. Okay, fascinating. Um, if people would like to get a hold of you, or would like to pitch you, or just hear more of your thoughts, where can they get access to you? I am, so what, what I didn't mention, which yeah. is my fault, is I currently work at a group called Founders Factory Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot to do that part altogether. So, I'm so sorry about that. Yes, Rajiv works at Founders Factory. Yeah. Uh, sorry, one second. No so I, I am currently the head of investments at Founders Factory Africa. We are a pan-African investor, mm -hmm. so we invest in fintech, health tech, and ag tech startups, mm -hmm. pre-seed, seed stage. Uh, so foundersfactory.africa uh, yes. is our website. Mm -hmm. I am on LinkedIn, and yeah, we're- Any socials? You know, socials, Twitter. Mm -hmm. What's the handle? At Daya Rajiv. My man. Okay. I think yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. very active <laughs> on socials, but it's at Daya Rajiv. I'll let uh, you know when they Founders Factory you. Africa is on yeah. every platform. Yeah, so, hard so you down. can you can find us there, and our website's the easiest and, and gives access to everything. Fab, what are you looking for in an investment? In in startups? Yeah. If you are building an incredible fintech, health tech, or ag tech uh, business that is transformative if you're an incredible founding team. Uh, we, we have an accelerator and an incubator program if, uh, if you are African focused, global, but you know, you, there has to be some kind of link mm -hmm. uh, to solving f 
an African problem that mm -hmm. can have global application, then you know we're and and you're at that sort of you know pre-seed seed stage of investment, so you know looking okay. for anything up to uh, three million dollars, I would say. Okay. Uh, last question, absolute last question. There's a time machine. There's an 18-year-old version of you. you yes. Say one thing to him. Yes. He doesn't know to you. He doesn't know who you are. Yeah. You just leave him one message. What would that be? Do not underestimate the value of mentorship. There is something, a, a principle that I came across a couple of years ago that I think is, is incredible for every 18-year-old to start to adopt. It's the rule of 33. Mm. So spend 33% of your time with people who are beyond where you are. Find examples of what good looks like, what you're interested in. That may change when you're 25 and that's fine. And then you'll find a new group of people to access as mentors. The value of mentorship, I think, is so underrated. Dramatically. And so 33% of your time with people who you aspire to uh, in whatever shape or form, 33% of, of your time with your peers and people who you feel you're on a similar level with, and that's your comfort zone, and 33% of your time with people who are you know, younger than you or a couple of years behind you or who would look to you as, as, as a mentor. And it's incredible how much you can learn from those relationships yeah. with mentees. Almost like the full stack human experience. Exactly. And so if my 18-year-old self spent any time thinking about that and trying to, to live that way, uh, I don't know. I, I would have probably accessed uh, a lot more knowledge and inspiration and, and ways of thinking about the world that I never had access to. Yeah, I think the, the, the last one around people younger than you, I think we dramatically don't appreciate how valuable that is until you're like in your 30s or 40s. Yeah. And like, even to this day, I was speaking to my one mentor the other day and we were just having a chat and you know, he was like, thanks so much for letting me mentor you. And I was like, oh, you're doing me the favor. He's like, no, you're doing me the favor. And I was like, I didn't see it until like he unpacked why I, he sees the value. And I was like, oh, I thought I was just asking you questions. He's like, mm. no, even the questions I was asking was giving him more insight into the world that I came from. So important and interesting. My man, thank you so much for your time. I really thank appreciate you. it. It was a thank very awesome, interesting chat. And um, yeah, thank you so much again. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. Um, as always, we really appreciate you tuning in and listening to this podcast. If you have any feedback or you'd like to make suggestions for future guests or things that we can improve on, please hit me up um, on any of my socials, um, Instagram and Twitter. I am M0TH3I. On, um, you can get me on my website as well, which is mothei.com, which is M-O-T-H-E-I.com. Or alternatively, you know, carrier pigeons and smoke signals are all the rage. Thank you so much for listening. And please, please, please do not forget, go to therapy. All right. Thanks so much, folks. Have a great day.